Okay. We left off uh, chapter 14 last week, and I think uh, the wheels got stuck in the mud a little bit last week as I reflected on everything we were sharing and a lot of too much information. So I had to go back and start to think about everything. And let me just step back a minute and do a really quick refresher. Chapter 1 is a prologue to everything that's going to happen in Revelation. Chapter 2 and 3 are the letters to the seven churches. Chapters 4 and 5 are description of the throne room and the scroll with seven seals. And the number of seven starts popping up at that point. Then we enter into chapter 6, and chapter 6 all the way through chapter 18 are the judgments and like vignettes of judgment that we're going through. We started off with the seals. Uh, that's in Revelation 6. Then we talked about the 144,000 and the multitude in Revelation 7. The trumpet judgment. First came the seals, then came the trumpet judgment. That's in Revelation 8 and 9. Then the angel and the little scroll. We talked a lot there, and that's Revelation 10. The two witnesses, we went through all that. That's in Revelation 11. The pregnant woman and the dragon, talked about that in, in chapter 12. The two beasts, which we talked about, and that was in 13. And then 14, which we're in the last two verses today, has talked about the 144,000 on Mount Zion, three angels, and the harvesting on the earth. Okay? We're going to get into the bold judgments, the battle of Armageddon, woman on the beast, and then we're going to get into the millennial and the final judgment, uh, wrapped up with a new heaven and new earth, and the epilogue to the whole thing in Revelation 22. So we're toward the tail end of this thing in terms of the judgments, the vignettes of the judgments. So try not to despair. It's, it's, almost, like there's, it's almost like in studying this book and going through it verse by verse, it's like we live a personal experience of going through everything in the book of Revelation ourselves. <laughs> it's like the, the judgments and the fire and the horns and everything. You're just, oh my gosh, I don't think I can take anymore. Uh, so it's really an interesting uh, book. Here in chapter 14, we have been talking about three angels and their messenger, messages and their messages. And this third angel has given us the harvest of the earth. That's been this third angel's message. So last weed, we, last weed, uh, it's getting so bad. <laughs> and <laughs> last week, we covered verses uh, 15 on through. Let me just read it to you. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud and said, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time has come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Remember, that being that was sitting on the cloud was like unto the Son of God and wore a crown. So we suggested that's Jesus. An angel telling Jesus, Now go and do this. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle, and another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. 
So before we move on to the last two verses of 14 and then 15 next week, we might ask ourselves, we're being presented with two harvests here. One, Jesus, or the being like the Son of God on the cloud wearing the crown, is told by an angel, thrust in your sickle, and the earth is reaped. And that seems to be a dry harvest. Then the second one is verse 18, where the angel comes and thrusts in the sharp sickle, the clusters of vine on the earth, and the grapes are fully ripe. That's a harvesting of grapes, and it's a wet harvest. So we have a dry harvest and a wet harvest. Jesus doing one of them, the angels of heaven doing the other. What is this talking about? What's going on? Now, some commentators suggest that the first reaping is a reaping of the righteous, and the second reaping is a reaping of the unrighteous. Uh, Others say that it's both a reaping, because the sickle's involved, of both righteous, all unrighteous. Um, I agree that there's two harvests going on here. One is of the righteous, that's Jesus who's harvesting that, and the other is of the unrighteous, and that's the angel harvesting the grapes. So, um, a guy named Steve Gregg, he's a preterist commentator, he says, many expositors believe that the reaping of verses 14 and 16 has to do with the salvation of believers and their gathering to safety. Uh, remember the, Jew, uh, the, the Christians went to Pella uh, between 66 and 70 AD to escape what was going on in Jerusalem. While the vintage version of verses 17 through 20 depicts the judgment upon that city because it's a wet harvest and the grapes are emblematic of blood. So the dry harvest of Jesus is gathering up his own, and the wet harvest is the gathering up of those who were, uh, quote-unquote, left behind and being harvested by the angel at the end. Um, Jesus says in Matthew 24, The Son of Man shall send his angels, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds. So we have to include the angels now into that description. It's also a little odd, we might think, that an angel comes out of heaven and tells Jesus, sitting on a cloud, wearing a crown and holding a sickle, go harvest. That Jesus is getting a direction from the angel. But uh, many commentators see this as simply representing that the church has been told, pray, pray, pray for the harvest to come. And that the angel is simply coming and telling him the prayers have been offered up. Now go. It's time. It's ready. And we remember Jesus said, pray the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into that harvest. So this seems to be, to most people who study this book arduously, this is what's happening. The prayers have ascended up. The angel's been told, go tell. It's time to do it. And, and the prayers are being answered. It might be a bit of a stretch, but I don't. it's up to you. All right, last two verses. And the angel thrust in his sickle to the earth. Now this is post-harvest of the dry. And gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. The winepress is called the winepress of the wrath of God. So just remember, that's its, total, that's its full title on the side of the winepress. The winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city... And blood came out of the winepress, even to the horse bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. So we're going to talk about those two verses now and wrap up the, the chapter. Um, in verse 15 and 16, 
the Son of God is told to thrust in, as we said, and begin to harvest there, and the earth is harvested. The term earth is gehe, which by now we have sort of learned, or if you might remember, it means the area. The earth is the, the gehe. It is not the cosmos. So when futurists read this and say it's going to, the whole earth's going to be harvested, that's not what it says here. It means simply the land is going to be harvested. And notice something else here. The angel tells Jesus to reap by thrusting in his sickle, and Jesus does. Why would this be? And that goes back to me just mentioning that Jesus has been commanding when he was on the earth, pray, that the har- pray for the Lord of the harvest, that. Pray for the Lord of the harvest, that. And as we've read in Revelation, many of the believers in the churches have been complaining about when will you bring your justice? When is it coming? And so that seems to be the relationship. He is reaping, I would strongly suggest to interpret this, that he is reaping the faithful of the land before the destruction that is going to follow. Uh, The dry reaping to me is of consumable good fruit. And uh, there's no shedding of blood in it. There is, uh, which is in contradistinction to the ripe grapes that are, when they are shed and thrown in the um, wine press of the wrath of God, it pours out blood. So we know that this is not a violent, uh, and I would take this as the twinkling of an eye, rapture, if you will, of the body of Christ at that time. Jesus coming and harvesting it and taking it up. And that's how I would see it. Remember when Jesus was describing to his apostles what to look for at the end of the age, which we covered at length in the first few weeks of this uh, study, Matthew 24 and Luke 21, he instructed them, get out of Jerusalem when certain signs happened. When you see this, take for the hills. And we remembered that when we talked about what Jesus said, that it doesn't fit our day. Pray that it doesn't happen on the Sabbath, he says. Well, what would it happen on the Sabbath mean to anybody today? Nothing. But to them, the city gates could be closed on the Sabbath. He also said, if you're on your rooftop, don't come back down. Well, what would that mean to us today? We don't hang out on our rooftops. But to them, they hung out on their rooftops, and their roof was a traveling road that they could take, one roof to the other to get to the city gates, versus going back down into the street and being annihilated by what was going on. So Jesus gave them a bunch of timely information about how to escape what was happening. And, and so this suggests that those who followed those instructions as passed down by the apostles were in the land when Jesus, when Jesus, when Jesus came and harvested and, uh, his own, and they didn't experience death, even though he's using a sickle and, but was a bloodless harvesting in the twinkling of an eye. The imagery of harvest for good and bad is used all through scripture in the, in the parable of the, uh, I am the, uh, vine and you are the branches. There's a harvest that goes on there where Jesus and the angels will gather up those things that were cut off and he'll throw them in the fire. There is a lot of imagery through the New Testament of a harvest going on for evil and good. The, the parable of the fishes, the good and bad, there's a harvest constantly. So in the next verse, 17 and 18, we begin to read of this next harvest, what we could call the harvest of sorrows. And uh, it begins, and another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, which had the power over fire. Remember the role of fire playing in the end. 
and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in the sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. Uh, Israel has long been associated with the vine. With, uh, in the Old Testament, there are passages that talk about her being the vineyard and the vine, and this is what this is. Those, those grapes are fully ripe. And in that sense, I didn't check this. You might check it on yourself, and if you want me to, tell me. But fully ripe, I'm not, I'm not thinking that's a good thing. I'm thinking fully ripe means they are ripe with iniquity, as scriptures will talk about. Her grapes are fully ripe. The vine of the earth, and in Revelation, the sea uh, usually represents, of course, uh, Gentile armies, whether there's river or sea, and the land uh, typically represents Israel. And so... The vine of Israel, for her grapes are fully ripe. Uh, we don't have Jesus doing the harvesting, like we said, but the angel, which is consistent when he said the harvest is at the end of the age, uh, Matthew thirteen thirty-nine, the harvest is at the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. So we have that a consistency there. So now to verse 19 and 20 again. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth. To read that through a consistent translation that we've been reading uh, Revelation in, and the angel thrust in his sickle into Israel and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. We've read enough quotes from uh, Suetonius and uh, Dio Cassius and Tacitus and other historians uh, secular Josephus, who described the scene. Uh, and so uh, we've done so many of those quotes, I don't think we need to do them again. Right now we know a few things right off the bat. The angel thrust in the sickle into the earth, gathered the vine of the earth, cast it in to the great winepress of the wrath of God. Whether you're a futurist or a preterist or, or a historicist or an idealist, you can pretty much say we have trouble here and some people group is getting it. They are getting cast in, and from the preterist view, the fulfillment view, I think this was the nation at that time, and the full uh, uh, justice was falling upon them. So certainly this is a vision of heavenly judgment come upon what people, and I think most people agree it would come upon Israel. However, there are the futurists who think it's going to come upon the whole world who aren't raptured up in the first harvest by Christ. It will be the rest of those who are left behind. The destruction of Israel prior to the siege of Jerusalem is pictured as the crushing of grapes uh, during the grape harvest. And this symbolism is not without uh, scriptural precedence. It's, it's, uh, in Isaiah 5-7, Israel is symbolized as that vineyard I was talking about. So if you're taking notes, Lamentations 1.15 and the slaughter of the Israelites uh, is represented by uh, grapes being crushed in the wine press. Uh, the imagery is clearly presented, what we're reading here in, in Revelation, in Isaiah 63, 1-3. Make note of this, I'm going to read it to you. It says there, and this is talking about, uh, this is a prophetic utterance. It says, who is this coming from Edom? from Basra with his garments stained crimson. Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? 
That word striding is often uh, tied to the horse riding. It is I proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, he says in this prophetic utterance of Isaiah. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all of my clothing, end quote. The Talmud uh, records the following. It says, quote, For seven years did the nations of the world cultivate their vineyards with no other manure than the blood of Israel. So, so that's a commentary written, and, and it, it taps into how Israel's blood will be uh, shed. So in my estimation, the grapevine harvest of sorrow is depicted here was upon the nation of Israel. At verse 20, uh, John adds more, and he says, and the wine press was trodden without the city. That means outside the city. And blood came out of the wine press, even unto the horse bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. So uh, if you're just going to read that in pure, straight English, no, you're going to be a literalist of Scripture, which this, this one's going to really floor the literalists. You're talking about blood that is the height of a horse's bridle, which they say is about average of four to five feet, in a space that is as long as 1,600 furlongs. That's how much blood. So let's first address this description that says the wine press was trodden without or outside the city. Without question, the city is Jerusalem, the great city, in Revelation 1.18, you may go back in your mind where we, is, this great city is also referred to in Revelation as Sodom and as Egypt. And we proved how in Scripture, uh, Jerusalem is called both Sodom and Egypt. And I think that the reason this phrase outside the city is used because it goes historically all the way back through the nation of Israel and what they did outside their city gates. Going back to the law of Moses, all the refuse, all the sacrifice, all the disease, everything happened outside the city, and the wicked were destroyed outside the city, stone there, unclean things, everything. So that was history. Uh, in the Valley of Hinnom, which is outside Jerusalem, I haven't been there, but that's where human sacrifices were taking place in the Old Testament. And this was uh, the burning trash heap of Jesus' day. And, and so we also know that even the carcasses of sacrificed animals by the high priest uh, carried them out from the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement outside the city for them to be burned. So there's an allusion to wickedness being outside the city gate and, uh, and it being associated with death. So that is why Revelation, John is saying the wine press uh, was being trodden outside the city. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus was crucified outside the city. Why? Because he bore our sin. And uh, so, and I think there's imagery for us, this is a side note, uh, in terms of heaven. That there are, there's the city limits, there's the temple, there's the holy of holies, and there are those who will geographically be fitted to reside in those areas, and there are those who will not be, they're going to be restricted from going into those areas, 
uh, because of how they were in this world. And so I think outside the city gates is where the, the, those who are wicked in this life continue to abide. It seems be, be, uh, consistent with Scripture. So, uh, in other words, no one who knew, the one who knew no sin became sin for us, and that was the ultimate uh, picture of what was outside the city gates. That's where he was put to death. That's where his blood was shed. So guess what? That's where the, his brethren who helped put him to death through the Roman army, that was where their blood was going to be shed. We also recall the passage for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the most holy place by the high priest as a sin offering are burned outside the city camp. <coughs> Some interpreters see this as a reference to the Old Testament purification laws, which are in Leviticus 8.17, where the unclean, like the lepers, are taken outside. Uh, and, of course, there's a reference to the end-time gathering of the wicked around the city of Jerusalem, which you can read. Uh, remember, end-time prophecy of the wicked gathered around the city of Jerusalem. You can read that in Psalms 2, 2, and 6, Daniel 11, 45, uh, Joel 3, 12 through 14, Zechariah 14, 1 through 4, and even in the, uh, the apocalyptic book, 1st Enoch 53.1 all talk about the wicked being gathered outside the city. If this is a reference to the day of the Lord, it lightly speaks of the valley of Jehoshaphat and according to Jewish tradition is part of the Kidron Valley between the Temple Mount and the uh, Mount of Olives. And this is where Joel prophesies that the judgment of nations will take place. That's in Joel 3.12-14. Additionally, Zechariah places the final battle on the outskirts of Jerusalem. That's in Zechariah 14, 1 through 4. So, and the winepress was trodden without the city. And blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horses' bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred fur, uh, furlongs. So, for a biblical literalist, isn't the harvest, isn't this a harvest of grape vines? That's what it says. How does blood come out of the winepress? So we have a problem here. We have grapevines, and if you're a biblical literalist, you have to say, yeah, it's talking about grapevines. And then you say, well, who, what's blood coming out? And they, they're going to have to say, well, it was the wine. It's, the, it's, it's not blood, it's wine. And then you have to come up with some whole extrapolated uh, meaning of this because you're going to stick to your literalness of interpretation of Scripture. The problem with zealous biblical literalism, in any case, we now see that the culmination of the age is going to be the harvest of sorrow. Blood is going to be shed. And notice that if we're biblical literalists, that we have to explain how an angel is harvesting grapevines, but blood is coming out of the wine press. Now we read some other things and we have to explain them too, either literally or as imagery or as imagery or symbolism uh, that is present, uh, presented to us by Hebrew idiom. And that is the thing that you find all through the book of Revelation is Hebrew idiom. And if you don't understand it, you're going to take it literally. You're not going to comprehend what is being said, and you'll make all kinds of mistakes. So what we read, the winepress was trodden without the city. Blood came out of the winepress, even to the horse's bridles, by the space of 1,600 furlongs. You tell me, is that literal? Is that representational? Is it a mix between the two? And who gets to say what it is? I like to look at what the history says. I like to look at how the Hebrews talked. 
I like to look at their generations and their people and see how all of that plays into describing it. And I trust that more than a spiritual interpretation of some dude today who says, no, this is in the future and we're literalists, so it's going to be blood like a banshee rolling through the earth. And that's how they see it. So a literalist must conclude at this harvest that grapevines are actually harvested by angels, that the wine press is outside the city, that blood comes out of the wine press of the wrath of God, that the blood was high as a horse's bridles. And I'm sorry, I keep thinking of two different things for you horse people out here. Uh, is the bridle in the mouth? Okay, so we're at, uh, that's right, because the doesn't say the mouth here, but the thing I looked up for that says it's about four to six feet high, so they made it an average of five feet high. So that's where the bridle would be. And it ran the space of 1,600 stadia. That's what it says in the Greek, and I mentioned that because we're going to get to that in a second, which says furlongs in the King James. So when we're talking about religion, almost everything in Scripture has been calculated out by somebody, and I was fortunate enough to find someone really smart in math to calculate this out for us. So if you're a biblical literalist, this is how Revelation uh, 1920 needs to play out for it to be real. Uh, I'm borrowing from this guy, and he says, one stades in Rome at that time is about 0.92 furlongs. A furlong is an eighth of a modern mile. So 1,600 stadia was 200 Roman miles, which works out to about 183.93 modern miles. So when it says 1,600 stadia to us today, just say you're looking at about 183.93 modern miles. Okay? The author then does some calculations, which I could not follow. And at this point, he says, now we need the height in order to calculate the volume. So high as a horse's bridle is an inaccurate measurement, but again, there is an inaccurate measurement for something people want to be exact. So he says we're going to call it five feet for simplicity. And then more calculations, and he reaches a figure of 971,150.4 feet. And he says, this is a quote, now ask a European high school student what the formula is for the volume of this figure he has, and we find out that it's pi times radius squared times height. So pi, 971,154 feet uh, by 5 equals 1.4814700 times 10 squared 13 cubic feet. There are 28.31 goes on and on and on liters in a cubic foot, giving us 4.99 times 10 to the 14th liters of blood. And with delight, he says, now let's turn this into people. And adds, I think we can safely assume that the wine press is only squeezing out blood. It is, after all, a divine wine press, so it should be able to discriminate between the vine and the, and the people. The human body contains approximately five liters of blood, so we can divide our total volume by five and get 83 trillion. 901,117,930,000 crushed people required to create this amount of blood. And he says that's about 11,800 times more than the current population of the earth. 
Are you a biblical literalist? See, that's the definition of a true futurist, is you are as literal as possible. And so if you step into a truly futuristic church preaching a futuristic eschatology, they're going to say, we've got to be as literal as possible, and they will preach. There will be blood up to the height of a horse's bridle, and when you do the calculations, we are talking about an impossible amount of blood. That's not what it's saying. I suppose the big lesson to take from this is little exercises to put on our biblical literalism gingerly. When it's obvious, it's literal, and when it's not, we've got to let the Spirit abide. Now, interestingly, the Jordan River is 251 kilometers long, listen to this, which is exactly 1,600 stadia. That, I, I checked several sources. So what it says here in Revelation, verse 20, when it says 1,600 stadia of blood is the length of the River Jordan. And Cambridge University astronomer, a guy named Fred Hoyle, three different units bearing the name stayed were in use at that time. An itinerary stayed used in measuring distances and journeys, uh, which is an equal length to about 157 meters. The Olympic stayed, which was 185 meters, and the Royal Egyptian stayed, which was 210 meters. He says that since we are calculating the length of a river, we're using the itinerary unit, and he converts 160 itinerary stadia to kilometers, and he comes out with the length of the Jordan River. Therefore, in verse 20, John sees blood flowing like wine, or as high as a horse's uh, bridle for 1,600 stadia or the length of the Jordan River, which is, if you want to be reasonable, emblematic of all of Israel because the Jordan River runs right through it. That's what the Jordan River represents, the blood running through all of Israel because it has fallen upon them at that time. That is what I would suggest uh, verse 20 is talking about. The flood seems to be a metaphor for the destruction of all of Israel and that age ending. And again, just to be sorry to be repetitive, that includes the temple, all their genealogy, every bit of it, gone. All their priesthood, gone, burned up. They don't even know who's from what tribe now. In fact, I question there being a literal Israel anymore because no one knows who's who. And... Uh, Floods and rivers representing the Gentile nations. This is in a, a metaphor for the result of the Gentile nations coming into Israel, represented by the Jordan River, a bloodstream that goes from one place to the other uh, in the whole country. Hyperbole, that is found in verse 2, is it says, as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. That is now, I just said, you've got to look at, at Hebrew culture. Do we find anywhere in Hebrew culture and writings where they talk about blood being up to the nose of a horse? Any, or, or up to, is it anywhere? Well, this is how you start to see how to interpret. So uh, the idea of blood flowing up to the horse's head at an extreme distance is a common Hebrew expression. Uh, and it means a great slaughter. We find it in 1st Enoch, which is not canonized, but is a, a book that the Jews read, the Midrash and the Talmud. In 1st Enoch 102-3, which is not canon, as I said, but it's ancient writings dated uh, way back. It says, quote, 
From dawn until the sun sets, they shall slay each other. The horse shall walk through the blood of sinners up to his chest. And the chariot shall sink down up to its top. That's a Hebraism. It means people are going to die. That's all it means. A lot of bloodshed. Uh, and it's believed that that writing came about 300 B.C. Uh, in the Jewish Midrash, which are commentaries on scripture, uh, we read the following as it speaks of the invasion of Hadrian, which happened after the destruction of Jerusalem. And it says, quote, They, the Roman army under Hadrian, slew the inhabitants, the Jewish rebels of Bethar, until, you ready? The horses waded in blood up to the nostrils. And the blood rolled along stones of the size of 40 seah and flowed into the sea, staining it for a distance of four miles. Again, is that literal? I don't think so. I don't think there was blood up to the nostrils of the horses. It's, it's just too much. But it is the way they talked. It's bad. Concerning the same war, the Midrash, third source, says... He, Hadrian, immediately surrounded the Jewish rebels with his legions and slaughtered them so that their blood streamed to the coast and stained the sea as far as Cyprus, end quote. The Babylonian Talmud, which is just essentially the Talmud, it says these, quote, these are 80,000 trumpets which assembled in their city of Bethar. Then it was taken and men, women, and children were slain in it until their blood ran into the great sea. Do you think this was near? It was a whole mile. It says... It says M-I-L, and I don't know if that's a mill or a mile, and I didn't take the time to find out, but it says it's a whole M-I-L away. That sounds like a thousand, but I don't know. Similar language is found in the apocalyptic book of Daniel. In the 9th century A.D., it's a pseudepigraphal work, not canonized, uh, purported to be written by somebody, but it's a false book. But nevertheless, the first seven chapters talk about something, and then it says, quote, and in the streets of the seven-hilled city, horses will be submerged, drowning in blood. A common way to speak. And to prove that it was hyperbole among the Jews, it's also in Scripture. If you want to see 2 Kings 21.16, quote, it says, Moreover, a Messiah shall shed innocent blood very much, till he has filled Jerusalem from one end to another, Beside his sin wherewith he made Judah to sin in doing that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Fill Jerusalem one into the other. Did not fill Jerusalem one into the other. But certainly it was bad. And then in Ezekiel, Pharaoh is pictured as a sea monster that's dragged to shore by the Lord and killed. And it says in Ezekiel 32.6, I will drench the land with your flowing blood all the way to the mountains. And the ravines shall be filled with your flesh. Jewish hyperbole. Include that in your understanding of Revelation and you'll have a much more reasonable approach than the crazy making that goes on with the book in our day. So we have nearly identical expressions of this here in Revelation 14.20. What's interesting is that the Jordan, as that emblem of all of Israel, uh, we're going to wrap up today reading a quote where it talks about how Josephus says the rivers got backed up with bodies that were flowing down to the Dead Sea. And so we have all this imagery of some really great carnage flowing through these rivers. And so that's going to play a part. 
Um, we also know Josephus says Galilee was overfilled with blood. Galilee overfilled with blood. So we note that the horse bridle mentioned here in verse 20, um, the question I have is who was on the horse, if anybody. And this takes us back to our study of the four horsemen uh, back in chapter, I think it was four, of Revelation, chapter six. And the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and of that it said, and I saw, behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. When we covered that, we inter- I interpreted that as Jesus, the white horse with a crown coming to conquer. And, uh, I, and, and so then in Revelation 19, we're going to read later that Jesus' garments are stained red because of the treading of the winepress. The language therein seems to echo what we're reading here in chapter 14 today. It says in chapter 19, we'll cover it then when we get to it, and I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true and in righteousness does he judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself and he was clothed with a vestiture dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God, all uppercase. The word of God on this white horse, blood everywhere, vestiture dipped in it and the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean and out of the mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should smite the nations. And I, I'd be willing to bet that word nations, there's ethnicities. We'll look at it. And he shall rule them with an iron rod, and treads the winepress of his fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So we have in chapter 19 a connection to chapter 6, white horse conqueror riding in. We have 19 saying he's coming in, and we have blood included. And I think that's what we are reading about here in the last verses of chapter 14. Um, according to Isaiah 63.3, it says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in my anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. So we know that that is part of what's happening here. Now, I had someone email me uh, last week. In fact, they may be watching now. And they said, if Jesus is God, Jesus came and he preached love. He preached forgiveness. He preached all these things when he walked the earth. How can he be involved in this heinous destruction of Jerusalem? Even personally, riding on the horse and the blood is staining his garments. I'm going to leave that question to you guys, and I didn't even think of how to answer it, but it, was, it just came up to me. Someone's asking this question. How do you explain that? How do you put that in your own head? So if we accept that this is Jesus on the horse, the fact that the blood reaches up to the horse's bridle, we have an understanding of how his garments turn red in chapter 19 while sitting on top of a white horse. Therefore, in summarizing all this up, Uh, far, far away from depicting a literal flood of blood uh, over Israel in the first century. Revelation 14.20 ultimately portrays Jesus coming in judgment on Israel as he rides on a white horse, shedding blood up to his horse's bridle, as he treads the winepress for the fury, the wrath of God Almighty. Bringing in a little more to wrap our chapter up, Josephus writes concerning the Roman soldiers after they burned down the temple, Josephus says, 
They ran everyone through. You know what that means? <sighs> they ran everyone through whom they met with and obstructed the very lanes with their dead bodies and made the whole city run down with blood to such a degree indeed that the fire of many houses was quenched with these men's blood. That's pretty dramatic speaking, that so many were killed that the fires are being put out in the blood. I think Josephus, being a Jew, was exaggerating a little. He may have seen some blood come in and put out a little fire, but it's this, this quantity, I'm just, maybe I'm faithless, but I just don't see it. So with descriptions like this, we have some support for the fulfillment of verse 20 here at the conclusion of chapter 14. John Wesley, he wrote, They to whom St. John writes, when a man said the city, immediately understood what city they were talking about. And blood came out of the wine press, even to the horses' bridles, so deep as its first flowing from the wine press, 1,600 furlongs so far, at least 200 miles through the whole land of Palestine. That's John Wesley's interpretation of this. Now, I agree with it because I believe that the blood of the people killed in Israel was everywhere, but not that deep uh, because, of the, uh, because of the, of the uh, slaughter. Uh, finally, this imagery we are reading is often referred to as the Battle of Armageddon, and uh, which authors like, past author, he's dead now, Tim LaHaye, the guy who popularized... Uh, really made popular, the futurist movement, and the guys who write books like Left Behind, I think that's Tim LaHaye, they refer to it happening on the plain of Megiddo, M-E-G-I-D-D-O, and that that's where it's all going to happen. Um, the battle on the great day of the God Almighty is going to take place in a place that includes Megiddo, but it's, it, in, in Hebrew, it's called Har Megiddo. Har Megiddo. So just stay with me and I'm going to wrap it up with this. Har means mountain or mount in Hebrew. So it's a mountain they're talking about, not a valley. So we hear of the valley of Armageddon. The Armageddon and it's a valley. But in Hebrew, Har Megiddo, it means a mountain and they tie that word Megiddo to it. Now, Megiddo is a place in biblical history that was known for bloody battles taking place. And so it would be like uh, Bonaparte, Napoleon Bonaparte's Waterloo, that we use it as a metonym today to describe something, a real battle that you, someone had to go through. So we're not talking about a place in uh, Belgium, actually, when we say, boy, uh, John really had his own Waterloo uh, this past year. We're talking about an experience that was horrifying for John. He experienced his own Waterloo. Megiddo would be used by a Jew in the same way. So when we say the mountain of Megiddo, that what they're talking about is not, a, not Armageddon taking the place in a valley. We're talking about what's happening in Jerusalem. And Megiddo, with Megiddo being emblematic of the things that have happened in that literal Megiddo, but not actually. And that might be too much for some to believe, but I think that's a, a really good explanation of it. Okay. Uh, geographically, Jerusalem sits on top of a mountain. I've never been there, but everyone tells me no matter where you are, Jerusalem's always up, up, 
up. And you can find support for it being up in 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, Chronicles, Ezra. You're always going up to Jerusalem. Even Jesus says, let's go up to Jerusalem. So that is the ultimate mount, the ultimate har, and then Megiddo, the battlefield. Okay, and then finally, let me wrap it up with uh, the final description by Josephus shows how the fulfillment of this, pro- of this could have taken place at that time. He says, uh, the Jewish war, 67, 73 AD, now the destruction that fell upon the Jews as it was not inferior to any of the rest in itself, so did it appear greater than it really was. And this, not because only the whole of the country through which they had fled was filled with slaughter, and the river Jordan could not be passed over by reason of the dead bodies. Now that's a lot, okay, that were in it. But because the lake Asphaltitus, which is the Dead Sea, was also full of dead bodies that were carried down to it by the river. So we have the river backed up with a log jam of bodies. You couldn't even cross the river. And the Dead Sea was full, which he calls Lake Asphaltitus, was covered with them. Now, Placidus, after this good success that he had, fell violently upon the neighboring small cities and villages when he took Albia and Julius and Bezimoth and all those that lay as far as Lake Asphaltus and put such of the deserters into each of them as he thought proper. So now they're going through the smaller cities and they're killing people and they're throwing them in the river as they decided, which would flow down to the Dead Sea. Then he put uh, his shoulders on board the ships, excuse me, then he put his soldiers on board the ships that were out at sea and they slew anybody who had fled into the lake insomuch that all of Perea had either surrendered themselves or were taken by the Romans. So that is from account of the Lake Asphaltitis on War of the Jews, uh, 476. We'll stop there. We'll take phone calls. We'll take in-house questions and wrap it up. Anything from anybody? Chapter 15 next week. My smile is growing more every day. I can't wait to just talk about Jesus. Just get back to the basics of, of the word. Won't it be nice? The great message, the good hope. Lake Asphaltitis, no more coming. Anything? Patrick is not standing. We need you to stand, our little rabbi friend, so that people can see you have the microphone. Yes. Get up, thy lazy. You always stand when people. Oh, you're going to say something. Oh, okay. I thought you were handing the microphone around. Oh, okay. No, you can lay there like a lizard. Don't say that. Keep going. Spiritualize a lot of it because, uh, uh, or symbolize. It's all symbolic, I think. It is all symbolic. Uh, and we can apply it to us, but symbolism, I don't think, and I could be wrong, I don't think those, we're going to see like, Little blood flowing, you know, I just, I just think it's more symbolism. Even if, uh, let's say you do believe Jesus is coming, I still believe it's all symbolic. Yeah. And we just take it too little and we just pound the pulpit and say, thus saith the Lord. And it's like, pound the pulpit. But I don't think we should use it as a scare tactic either. I don't either.
God you is love. You know what this is, Patrick? You know what we're doing here, don't you? Uh, we are beating revelation out of every single person who has stuck with us. We're beating it out of you. So that when anyone mentions it, you are just going to say, no. I've covered it. No. You're not going down there. Let's just talk about what's in the epistles. Amen. That's what we're doing. We are beating revelation Amen. out of you. Amen. Amen, brother. Well, you're doing good work, Sean. Thanks. Thank you, brother. I think Grant has a, has a common question. Then Dave, right in front of Grant. Have you guys been sufficiently beaten? Six more chapters. Hang in. Uh, <laughs> Come on, Rex. Is it on? It's on, brother. Uh, you just got through saying that uh, the there were so many bodies that they were flowing down the river. Yeah. And it was full, the river was full of bodies. Yeah. And the, the lake was full of bodies. Yeah. But yet there were ships in there. How could the ships float if it's full of bodies? Ships got to have water to get on. Well, <laughs> I'm sure it probably means at the mouth of the Dead Sea that it blacked up and that's how they backed up into the river. I'm sure that's what it meant. I don't think the Dead Sea itself was full of bodies. Yeah. Uh, well, that was interesting. That was interesting. Thank you, Grant. Yeah. Someone take that gun away from him. Oh, sorry. Hey, Sean. As you know, I'm in ministry among the Mormon people, and one of the things that... Uh, really makes it hard, that, that drives me crazy, is when uh, any church focuses on what I would call a non-essential, whether it be uh, Calvinism or eschatology or, or anything like that. And a couple of things I just wanted to ask you about, about uh, campus and, and preterism. Some of the statements on there, I've, I've invited people to come with me. They don't think they're, they can come here unless they're uh, a preterist. Could you clarify that? Because they're feeling like you're hyper-focusing on on this uh, issue, and it kind of makes it sound like you have to think that way to be here. Could you just respond to that and then I'll ask my other question about Revelation? Yeah, have to is not in my vocabulary. It's not part of campus at all. In fact, Grant, who just asked the question, is a full-blown futurist. Okay. Uh, so everybody is welcome. I just teach it from my perspective, but I will say this. In Milk, where we are just going through other <clears throat> books, it, uh, uh, full preterism certainly clouds or, or colors the way I teach. Oh, sure. Because no question, it, yeah. it has to come up. And so if you don't like that and Scripture to be colored that way, you shouldn't come. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I just wanted to say is I, I think that before I ask my question, I'll give it a, a backdrop. If, if people don't cede the fact that some of the things in Revelation is talking about the very near future, th they're literally making the book uh, an unhonest reading of the book, in my opinion, because the Greek is so strong. So I'm with you there. Yeah. Uh, I think you could argue for an early, you know, 60, 65 dating or a later dating. But my question for you is this, um, and I've been waiting to ask this, a lot of preterists that I see, I, I see holes in everybody's eschatology, including my own, by the way. So I don't know. I, I would say I'm premillennial for sure. But, but my question is this, how do you make sense of the resurrection? Because I see a whole lot of preterists that just have to ignore a whole bunch of scriptures that it just can't be. And so they end up saying, well... How do you square that? Because I, how, I squ how I square it, and uh, you and I can sit and talk about the, uh, whether you agree with these things or not, you probably won't, but how I square it is that everything in the former age, everything related to the Bible and its content is material. 
And so Jesus having to come back to his people was a material resurrection. And when he came back to get his church, he was materially returned with his body. So they would see his hands. I believe that he materially resurrected. Sure. But I read, my reading of 1 Corinthians 15 tells me that there is a <clears throat> earthly body and there is a heavenly body. And the way I see it now being fulfilled is that everybody, since Christ came and took his church, when they die, they experience the rapture, they experience judgment, and they experience their resurrected heavenly body given to them by God at that time. And then they continue to live in that heavenly environment. And that will continue to go on age ad nauseum. My last little thing, I'm just going to tell you this, is James White's still coming here? He is. Okay, well, I just got to tell you a great thing. And I just love it. We had a room of about 100 LDS people who didn't understand the concept of a triune God or a Unitarian God or a modalist God or all these different things. And they watched a debate uh, with James White oh. and, and uh, you know, uh, someone that had a oneness Pentecostal view. Oh. And he stood up and said that they're one in purpose. And the Mormon people there laughed so hard. Wow. He literally said it. And so wow. I think that's ridiculous. And wow. I hope he's held to account here on that point. Well, come and you can hold him to account on it. Thank you, Dave. Excellent insights. Anybody else? Excellent, you guys. Thank you for speaking up, and let's pray. So, Lord, we are grateful for uh, the places that you've put us in our different ages and maturities in the faith, our knowledge, and how we're learning together. And we pray that, uh, you know, Dave brought up a good point. Just because we so heavily talk about especially in meat, Please, Lord, uh, before you and before my brothers and sisters who are watching and here, do not uh, let anyone think they have to believe anything I teach or say, anything, that it's an open forum and we're learning. And I don't know half of what people sitting here know. We're just, I'm a teacher. We teach, we share, we grow, but everyone is free to have their views and walk out with them because they're going to go. I'm going to go before you with my views. I'm going to be responsible for the Spirit leading me, and as will everybody else. So we pray that that mentality, that approach will continue on. We uh, pray for those who are struggling in the faith, people who are coming out of Mormonism or any other legalistic or uh, group that teaches uh, differently about the grace of God or the makeup and all those things. We just pray that you will bring seekers of truth to you. We pray that you will comfort uh, the people who are lost, comfort the people who are broken, comfort the people who are sad and lonely, uh, who are mourning. And uh, we just pray that you will sustain us in our sojourn here upon this earth, that we'll look to that foundation that uh, was laid and we will stand upon it firmly. We pray for the people written on this list. We pray for Lisa and her cancer and her suffering and her uh, life, that you will comfort her. And we pray for Charlie and her health issues and Karen and hers, uh, Glenda, Diana, Matt to recover from the flu. We pray for Samson and Laser who have had the flu for weeks, that you will heal their lungs and help them. Diana, her continued healing. We pray for our little friend Gracie and her cancer treatments will be effective and that you'll bless her parents who are so worried about her and, and help her to feel pretty with without hair and as little girls, this is stuff so important to them. We pray for Mike and lung cancer recovery treatments. We pray for Michael recovering from surgery, Annette, her chemo treatments, and uh, 
the people who don't know it, who may be entering into difficulty with their health, we just pray that you will help them and, uh, and uh, bless them to understand that you are there and that through all these trials and uncertainties, you stand firm and we uh, are preparing to meet you, be with you, live with you. As everybody who has ever walked this earth comes to see you face to face, and we just pray that you will help us to leave this building now or leave our homes wherever we are and have our heads up and our chins up and we'll look to uh, the future and have our hope in you, Christ. And we just pray for these things, Lord. And uh, in Jesus' name, amen. amen.